Hey, you're listening to the Adventures in Advising podcast with Colm Cronin and Matt Markin. Are you passionate about working with students and making a difference in their lives? Then join us as we bring together those in the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and their own advising stories. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also follow us on our social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. And as always, keep advising. Hello and welcome to Adventures and Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Markin and welcome to episode 17 of the podcast. We're at 17, Colm. How are things going with you? Things are, are good here, Matt, really keeping safe and well. We've seen a little bit of a spike in cases in Ireland in, in the last week, so everyone's keeping an eye on that. We're also coming up to the Leaving Cert results, which will be the real point where students get to know when they will be coming to university. And I know certainly from a North American context, that is quite surprising to people because especially this year, students aren't going to get their results until the 7th of September. And some universities has initially planned for a start on the 14th of September. So they've pushed that back to the 21st. But you can imagine for students living in a different part of the country, trying to organize accommodation and uh, get things sorted out to, to begin their new life at university. It's a, a very quick turnaround. But that's kind of what all eyes are focused on at the moment. And looking at our international arrivals as well and ensuring that they are safe and well and the correct protocols are in place. Because when, when do you start? Well, DCU has actually pushed back to the 5th of October this year. So we're uh, a little bit later. Every institution in Ireland has kind of taken a, a different approach. Usually it would be September. And Trinity last year had moved to early September but they have pushed back out now again so it's really changed things and I know the University of Limerick um, put out a, their plan last week around university teaching so they're gonna gonna have um, undergrads on, on campus and then you'll be off campus for three weeks so there's a lot happening at, at the moment but nobody's entirely sure where where we stand um, just yet so um, much to happen in the next month, I guess. Now, when we were last speaking, there were wildfires in California, and the news tells me today that that situation is still pretty bad over there. How are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm doing fine where I'm at, but yeah, we still got got fires in Southern California, especially. So I think. Let's let's see. I think for this upcoming week, I mean, we're still going to be in like the triple digits. And I think there's only one day over the weekend on Saturday that should be in the double digits, but at 98 degrees. But it's expected to still be very high temps for the next couple of weeks. I mean, it's it's August, so it's something that we're used to these high temperatures, but it doesn't help, especially with the fires. And actually, speaking of that, there was a fire that was in California and it was near the Nevada border. And they had what happened is they actually had a fire tornado 
So we call it a fire nado. So essentially what happens is there's like a gust of hot air that blows through the fire. And if it if the winds hit at the fire at a certain angle, it sparks like this tornado of sorts. So not like not the best things to happen, but on to positive news, uh, we do hope everyone is safe and ready to start for the fall term. For us, we're starting next week. So we're pretty excited about that. Again, it's our first time being on semesters, uh, previously being on quarter. So we're used to starting in late September, but now we're starting next week. And I know there are some institutions that are actually starting this week for their semester. So best to everyone uh, whenever you're starting your term. And just know that whether you're back on campus, you're working remotely, either way, you got this. We all got this. So let's go and do it. But I think we had a shout out, right? Yes, indeed. Um, was delighted to uh, discover last week that we had been listed on the University of Miami's website. So they asked for their staff to send in some podcast recommendations and Adventures in Advising was right there alongside This American Life, Hidden Brain, the Michelle Obama podcast. So that was a very nice thing to wake up to last Monday morning. And just want to give a shout out to Gisette Taveres. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. She's a senior academic advisor in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Miami. So thank you for putting us on the list. We really do appreciate it. Nice. And um, actually, just looking right now at, at LinkedIn, a couple more shout outs. Uh, one to Loyola Marymount's School of Education. So we had Microsoft Sosimo on our podcast last episode, who works at LMU. And looks like uh, Loyola Marymount School of Education posted about that. And so they posted about Michael talking about his work with students and pursuing careers in mentorship and volunteer work and had our link out there to the episode. So thank you, LMU. And also to Carlos Grajeda, who is a learner and bilingual student success coach. So a couple of weeks ago, he um, wrote and said that he thinks the podcast is fantastic. And he actually had a suggestion and was saying, I'd love to hear more about con uh, more content regarding multicultural advising. So and said, thank you for the great work. So you know what, Carlos, don't thank us. We want to thank you for that comment. You're awesome. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. That's a great suggestion. And I think we kind of touched a little bit upon it uh, on last episode with the interview with the wonderful Evelyn Knox. And and I think we'll have some more that uh, that will touch upon multicultural advising in an, a future episode, possibly in September. So thank you, Carlos, for that. But we do have three interviews, but two are combined in one. And I think we have Amber Cargill and Wendy Schindler, right? Yes, indeed. So we are talking all things uh, advising communities. So this is... I suppose one of the really fun areas we've been able to explore because I know I have really enjoyed my time involved in the advising communities and it was great to have the opportunity to talk to Amber and Wendy and learn a little bit more about what goes on in the the background and we also got to learn, for me being here in Ireland, I got to learn a little bit about the State Fair from Amber during this interview. Yes, indeed. And this episode uh, with 
Amber and Wendy. A lot of this came about because both of them, including Don, had reached out um, and asked about a suggestion for a podcast episode. And, you know, they had expressed loving the podcast and they were discussing ways that they could talk more about the Nakata advising communities and the importance of these communities. And they wanted to know, hey, is this something of a potential topic that you could add to one of the podcast episodes? And it was like, of course. And since you all had the idea, how about you'll come on the podcast and talk about it? We think that would be great since you had the idea. So yeah, so we have Amber and Wendy up right now. And Something of a quick note is before we get into it, you'll hear us talk about the Iowa State Fair that Colin was referring to. Just to note, the fair was not open, but the grounds were. So if you're wondering how, why are they talking about that? And how is it that the the fair was running with the pandemic? Uh, It wasn't, uh, but the grounds were open. So listen more and find out. And here we go in three, two, and one. All right, we're in for a treat today for this episode. We have two folks that we're interviewing at the same time. This is the second time this has happened. So who's the first that we have? Well, that is Amber Cargill, who is an academic advisor in the Food Science and Human Nutrition Department at Iowa State University, where she works with current and prospective students to discuss majors and career opportunities, as well as teaches an orientation course for freshmen, major changes, and transfer students. Amber also coordinates both the FSHN Transfer Learning Community and Faculty Advisor Training and Development. Prior to working at Iowa State, Amber had previous positions as an advisor in the College of Education and Human Services at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and as a career counselor and residence hall director at Augustana College. Amber earned her bachelor's degree in French and minor in international studies from University of South Dakota and a master's degree in student affairs administration in higher education from Texas A&M University. Amber has extensive involvement within NACADA, the Global Community for Academic Advising, and also received the NACADA Advising Communities Division Service Award in 2018. Amber, how are you? I'm doing good today. Thank you. And you are live right now at the Iowa State Fair. Yes, I am. <laughs> Take, taking a break to, to do this podcast. We truly appreciate it. And hopefully you have some good food that, that you've already had at the fair. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast. Yes, we had a pickle dog today, so I can explain that later, but it was delicious. (laughs) Awesome. Sounds good. I mean, I like the name. And you're not alone. We have your tag team partner here, and that's Wendy Schindler. And Wendy has over 15 years experience as an academic advising and first year experience professional. She is currently the coordinator of TRIO Student Support Services at Northern Kentucky University. She holds a BS in psychology from Missouri State University and an MA in higher education administration from St. Louis University. Although she has held several positions throughout academia, advising is where her passion lies. She credits Nakata as being a vehicle for the growth and learning she's experienced professionally. Wendy is incoming to the Nakata Council as an advising communities division representative and is a former chairperson of the Nakata LGBTQA advising and advocacy community. 
She's an experienced conference presenter speaking on topics such as LGBTQA allyhood, intersectionality, and fat liberation. Wendy lives in the Cincinnati metro area with her husband of 15 years and three spoiled rescue cats. She's a knitter and crafter, gamer, singer, cheese lover, punk goth enthusiast, Slytherin, and social justice warrior. Wendy, my fellow Slytherin, how are you? (laughs) Hello, I'm doing great today. (laughs) And you are not at a state fair today. I am not at a state (laughs) fair. I am at home in my craft room turned office. Well, I am definitely jealous of Amber being at the state fair. And I can see that it's um, nice and sunshiny there because I can tell you it has been like November in July in Dublin. Just we have we had we had a lovely spring and we have had winter for summer. So I'm very jealous of your sunshine there, Amber. Yes, it's beautiful and great for the garden. We've got a lot of things we've planted as well. So we're happy to have it. So then I am very jealous of you, Colm, because I am not a summer person. (laughs) It has been hot and humid where I am. And I would love to experience some winter in July. Well, you're you're welcome to to come over um, on a plane and uh, come visit Dublin. You'd be more than welcome to to do so and experience some of that cool summer breeze and uh, rain that that we have. Um, it, it it certainly is very different to anything I think you'll have stateside. Nothing over seventy. I can guarantee you that. And Amber, tell us about the pickle dog. So the there's an appetizer that's fairly known in the Midwest. It has, um, you take a slice of ham, like deli ham, and put cream cheese on it. And then you roll kind of a whole pickle up inside of that. So, um, you know, I guess you can kind of think of it as sushi, pickle sushi maybe. Um, and then um, at the fair for the pickle dog, they take that whole ham, cream cheese, pickle thing, put batter on it and deep fry it. So it actually looks like an egg roll, but when you bite into it, you have ham, cream cheese, and a pickle. Love it. I want one. It's so good. <laughs> I like the the pickle sushi description. I think that uh, sounds fascinating. Um, Amber, I suppose um, in the UK and, and Ireland, I think transfer students are, are much less of a phenomenon. So for listeners who are based here um, or maybe in other countries where tra- transfer students um, are, are, are less, um, you know, likely to, to, to or advisors are less likely to deal with transfer students. Can you talk us through a little bit of, around what transfer student means and what advising a transfer student means? Yes. Yeah, so um, a popular path for families is to maybe spend one or two years at a two-year community college and then transfer to a four-year university to finish out a bachelor's degree. So at a community college, you maybe get an associate of arts, associate of science. Um, as education costs have continue to rise in the U.S. That's a common path for families to go. Um, There's also a very popular path right now for high schools that offer their students are maybe ahead of their high school requirements. They're given the choice to take classes at high school for college credit. So 
at my institution, transfer students usually means that you have taken courses elsewhere and then are finishing your degree at Iowa State. So I know some some universities, you know, consider incoming first year students direct from high school as transfer students, even if they have, you know, maybe 10 or so credits from high school. Um, so every school counts that differently. But um, for the department that I work in, our majors are the only ones available in the state. So we get a lot of students from other two-year universities, other four universities, once they find their career path in our department. So advising transfer students is interesting because, you know, the age range is 19 to 19 plus. Um, there's really not an age for transfer student. There's a lot of military um, folks that, you know, are finished with their duty or continuing their duty and coming back. And so a lot of it is, quirky trying to figure out the courses that they have completed which are going towards their new major and there's a lot of terms um, that you have to walk through with students as far as you know misconceptions about what courses transfer how long it will take them and all of those so you have to be really clear about what everything means how it all works um, so that you're on the same page with your student and with their family yeah, and before we get to Wendy, uh, one more follow-up question for you, Amber, is um, at uh, your uh, current institution, you coordinate the uh, FSHN Transfer Learning Community. Can you talk about yes. uh, what that all involves? Yes, yeah, so um, we have a group. Um, we usually run the learning community um, in the fall semester and a separate class in the spring semester. So all, all brand-new students to my institution in our department, they take a, a transfer seminar, which I teach the first half of every semester. And so we go more in depth about the university, about our department, about the careers. You know, we have, we bring professionals to class for them to interview. So it's really kind of a, it's like a first year experience course for transfer students, but we have two student leaders who usually have been transfer students that coordinate activities for them, connect them to faculty, we have a student-run restaurant in our building, so we usually have we usually do a meal in there with faculty and just really connecting them to the university, their career career field, and each other. And then I guess for Wendy, um, just so if listeners don't know, you work in a trio program. Can you define for those that don't know what trio is? Yes. So um, trio has been around for like 50 years and the reason it's called trio is it was originally a united states federally funded grant program that was split into three different specific programs uh one was for high schoolers one was for um two different uh branches of college students and now there are five or six programs so trio is kind of a misnomer these days but under TRIO, I specifically work for a student support services program. So student support services works with first-generation, low-income students primarily. We also have some students um, who are eligible for our program because of a disability, or we have we can take a few students who are just first-gen or just low-income, but the majority of our students are first-generation, low-income students. Uh, who don't have someone at home who has been through the whole college experience and can kind of guide them through that. So we are, um, I act as a second advisor for my students. And then also um, 
guide, I guess I would say. Um, so anytime students have questions, things like that, I tell them don't run around looking for answers. Just come see me and I'll run around and look for answers for you because there's no reason for you to, you know, feel like you're in a pinball machine binging back and forth between offices because you weren't quite sure where to go in the first place. Just come see me and we'll, you know, either I will find out answers for you or we will walk together and go to different offices. So I'm kind of um, student support services in general. We're just an extra wraparound support for those students who need it, um, who don't have um, the background or the knowledge on their own to figure out some of the things in college that if you're not a first generation student, you might take for granted because you've got a parent at home that knows knows the deal. Well, thanks to both of you for going through that. It really helped sketch things out for me. So I'm already learning as part of this episode. I think what might be interesting for listeners is to hear how you both got involved in advising and what your journey uh, looked like. So, Wendy, maybe we'll start with you this time. Yeah. So um, when I went to college my freshman year, um, I I didn't go in undecided. I had a major all picked out and I was a vocal music performance major who planned on singing opera. And that lasted for an entire week uh, because I got into my music theory class. And the first day, my professor said, all right, so this first week, um, most of what we're going to be talking about should be really a review for all of you. So it's going to start pretty, you know, low key before we really ramp up in music theory. And about five minutes later, I had no idea what he was talking about anymore. And I was like this was a mistake. So I decided that I could still sing and, you know, find opportunities to be part of choirs or to sing on my own. And I needed a different major. And so that's when I went into psychology because uh, I'd taken psychology in high school. I really enjoyed it. And I never changed my major again in my undergrad. I really enjoyed psychology and I stuck with it. But as I started getting to the end of my undergrad experience, I realized I wasn't quite sure what was going to come next. Uh, so I started looking into options um, and I really had had thought about getting a master's degree. So I figured, okay, that's what I'm going to do. What am I going to get this master's degree in? And so I uh, went into sports psychology uh, and was really interested in how teams work together and started a master's degree in that. Um, and I enjoyed all of my classes very much. I enjoyed what I was learning, but the job that I had in my head really wasn't a job that existed out there. <laughs> I was like, okay, so as part of that master's degree, I had to take a class in a different department. And so in the college student personnel department at Western Illinois University, there was a group dynamics class. And I thought, oh, well, that will really help me understand teams, sports teams well. So I took this class. Everyone else in the class was in college student personnel. And the more I talked to them and the more I learned from our professor and got more into the class, I was like, what am I doing with my life? Like, this is where I'm meant to be. And it really kind of came home for me because um, I, I started getting more and more interested in academic advising. And I became interested in that a lot because I kept thinking, had I had an academic advisor who really talked to me about 
things beyond my coursework. I had an academic advisor who was great at saying, this is what you need to graduate. And I was kind of an overachiever who would go in and say, this is what I want to take next semester. And he would be like, great, we're done. So um, I wanted to make sure I could be better than that for other people. He was a fantastic professor. He just wasn't the greatest advisor for me. So, um, so I, uh, it was like, okay, well, no more sports psychology. Um, at that point, it was too late to get into the college student personnel department at the college I was at. And so I'm from St. Louis. So I transferred to St. Louis University and I finished out uh, my program there and did some internships that really solidified that academic advising is what I wanted to do. And so that's what I've pursued ever since. I've done some jobs outside of academic advising. Um, so I did student activities for a while. I ran um, an orientation program at a community college for a while. And while I enjoyed those things, it always like creeps back over to academic advising for me. That's really really where my heart lies in higher education. So it was really a winding path that got me here, but I'm glad that I finally found where I love to be. Nice. And when you were at St. Louis University, the mascot at that institution is a billikin? Billikin. What exactly yes. is a billikin? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Nobody knows. So <laughs> a villikin, um, if you if you look up a picture of one, that's like the best way to kind of get an idea. It's kind of this like gnome elf looking creature. Um, apparently, because when I went there, I, I mean, I'd heard villikin most of my life because I lived in St. Louis, but I didn't know what one was. And uh, so I looked it up when I started working there. Appear it's kind of a mythological, like I said, elf-like creature. And apparently in the early 1900s, it was a very popular thing. And everyone knew what a billikin was. And that's when it became the mascot. And then everyone forgot what a billikin is in the rest of the world. <laughs> and um, But it's still the mascot. And it's kind of weird looking elfy creature um that yeah nobody knows what a billikin is actually so badly that um especially like basketball games st louis university is really big as a big basketball team um chants from the other team are often what the hell is a billikin what the hell is a billikin so <laughs> it's an interesting mascot with an interesting past amber can you can any of your institutions that you've been to as a student or professional can you beat that mascot um no i can't um no i was a coyote and an aggie so i guess depending on the part of the u.s or world you're from you might not know what an aggie is although the mascot no. is a dog so i don't i don't know what an aggie is so i went to graduate school at texas a&m university so we are fighting Texas Aggies. So it's an agricultural school. 
so Texas Agricultural and Mechanical School. Um, but their dog is actually um, a collie um, that I should know the name of, and all you Aggies out there are going to kill me because, tri no, Reveille. Reveille is the collie's name. So the mascot is the dog, but you call they're called Aggies. I think um, you both need, I don't know, Matt, whether you're uh, come across it. There is, um, Bancher University is a phenomenon in the UK and Ireland, and it's like a parody university, and they are um, on social media, and they had a mascot world championship recently, which was won by um, Wolfie from the University of Limerick. But um, there are some truly wonderful um, entries in the Mascot World Championship. I think the Billiken should be in there for the next one. Wendy, I think you you might need to check out Bancher University. I would advocate it anyway because they're very funny and enter the <laughs> Billiken. I should check that out. My sister um, has a doctorate in pharmacy. She went to St. Louis College of Pharmacy and their mascot is the Eutectic which is a chemical reaction. Wow. That's all I can say. Wow. <laughs> what does that even look like? <laughs> well, they don't have sports or anything. So it, it like no one's chanting okay. about the eutectic, but they still have a mascot, which I think is awesome. Wow. So Avery, can you talk about your, your path to advising? Sure. So um, I had two goals going to college. One of them was to study abroad and graduate in four years. And that's exactly what I did. Um, I never set foot in a career services office. Um, but one thing that was consistent in all my time was the undergraduate catalog. So back then, everything was paper, you know. Um, so I was poor because I really wasn't sure about my major. I just knew that I wanted to study abroad. I had taken French all four years in high school. Um, I took a few other intro classes and decided that I would just do French because it would lead me toward my goals. So um, I actually studied abroad in France my entire junior year of college. I lived in Orleans, France, um, where Joan of Arc did her big thing and freed the king. Um, and when I returned from there, so that was my entire junior year of college, whole academic year. So when I got back, um, I helped out with international student orientation. I had no idea what I was going to do, but the person who was running this orientation, she had the master's degree that I now have. Um, my master's was student affairs administration, higher ed, so college personnel, all that same stuff. So um, again, I had no plan, so I was just like, let's go to grad school, because what am I going to do with French? And um, so I did, I applied everything last minute, you know, I was still trying to, you know, living in a foreign country for eight months, trying to defrance my brain and trying to like study the GRE, all these really long, hard English words, my brain just hurt. So I just remember studying flashcards and having, saying once to my roommate, can you just pronounce this word for me? Because my brain, I just don't even know how to pronounce it right now because I was so messed up in my head. Um... Anyway, so I ended up going to graduate school at Texas A&M University in their program. Um, so I, I had kind of advised all my friends, and I knew that I wanted to do advising later, but I chose other opportunities in grad school just to 
kind of get the feel for other areas. So I was a competitive swimmer and Texas A&M hosted the men's NCAA swimming championships and for collegiate athlete swimmers. Um, so I helped out with that. And I also helped out with um, a non-traditional student orientation program as well. And so I think that's kind of where my love for transfer students started. I've always had a special heart for transfer students. Um, and so at AM, um, I didn't do any advising, but I knew, um, so finding advising jobs without having any kind of background or experience in advising is a little challenging. So I worked at Augustana College and had a joint position in career services. And then I was also a residence hall director and my residence hall was only 200 students. So um, I had office hours in a career center during the day and then did the residence hall position the other hours and so that gave me the experience that i needed to get that advising job so after two years there um i've been in advising ever since so i've been an advisor now for um i'm doing the math here 16 years and amber do you still speak french um i do a little bit yes so um not a whole lot you know i have my fun phrases that i like to say um when people ask me that um I turn on, you know, subtitles sometimes every now and again, or I'll just kind of hear it on campus and stuff. So it's pretty fun. Testament to the power of study abroad, which is is my background. So delighted to to hear that, uh, you know, you you still have it. Um, and thank you both for for sharing the the stories. It's really interesting to hear how people um, become advisors. And um, what about, I suppose, the the your involvement with NACADA and how that came about? Yeah, so my first academic advising job, um, I did my first advising job for about seven and a half years, and um, my institution actually hosted a regional conference with NACADA. Um, my office at that time didn't provide any support, and I had some coworkers go to the conference, but I didn't really know much about it. Um, but we hosted a regional conference and actually I ran the registration table and didn't attend any sessions. <laughs> so um, when I left that institution and went to my current one at Iowa State, my supervisor is very supportive of um, professional development. So I've been able to get involved thanks to her providing me the funding and opportunity. And so our um, campus has uh an advising summit is what we call it every year. And um, Charlie Nutt, um, who is really executive director, I think that's his title of Nakata, I should know this. Um, so he came to campus and he really just kind of gave everybody the message to really get involved in your profession. And so I really took that message and kind of went crazy. So I started small and did some book reviews for Nakata. Um, I was able to attend a national conference. And so that's where I went to my very first um, advising community on transfer students and met everybody there. Um, and so I just kind of followed that path. So I was involved in the, the advising community. I was on the steering committee for the community and then I was chair of the community and now I'm one of the division representatives. And so it's been a really fun way to get to know other people across the US, across the world. It is a tremendous avenue to really brainstorm with other professionals, um, problem solve with other professionals, network to help your friends who are maybe thinking of relocating, all of that 
stuff. So, you know, my involvement has really been, I guess, I just want to thank my chair, my department chair, for allowing me the opportunity to get involved in providing me funding. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had all the opportunities that I've had thus far. Yep. It always starts with one person with support. Mm-hmm. Wendy, how about you? So I... um The last institution I worked at, um, when I started academic advising there, I had been out of higher ed for a couple of years. Uh, We had moved from my husband's job to Orlando, Florida, and the biggest university there, University of Central Florida, had a hiring freeze when we got there. And so I just couldn't find anything. So I, I kind of worked in event planning for a little while. So when his contract was up and we moved back to the Midwest, I was like, I have got to get back into higher ed. So um, I got a new position as an academic advisor. And I was like, I really, you know, I've been out of this a couple of years, I need to, I need to do some things to work on myself professionally. And so uh, one of my coworkers had told me about Nakata and that she had been planning on going to the conference. And so I looked into whether I could get funding for it. And I thankfully was able to and got to go to my first um, annual Nakata conference. So the big one, And um, I just enjoyed it so much. I learned so much. I met some great people. Um, I happened to go to the LGBTQA advising and advocacy, uh, advising communities business meeting while I was there and um, met some really great people there um, and was able to get involved with a couple of people from other institutions um, for us to, um, we ended up presenting together. And so I made some really great connections and I just kept getting more involved in that, that advising community in particular. And so eventually, um, you know, an election was coming around and the chair at the time was like, Hey, I think you should run for this. And I was like, okay. Um, okay. (laughs) So I thought, all right, I'll run for this, but like there'll be someone else running. And so, you know, what are the chances that I'm going to win? And then the slate of candidates came out and I was running unopposed. So I was like, oh, I guess I'm winning. So I became the the chair of the LGBTQA advising and advocacy community. Um, And it was just such a great experience um, leadership wise for me, but just also I I think for me, Nakata always comes down to the people, all the people involved, all the connections that I've made. So I made connections with some really wonderful people, had a really wonderful um, experience. And I found a lot of support because uh, in my, I think it was my, in my second year. So of the two-year term, my second year, midway through, I found out I had a brain tumor. Good times. So I had to have brain surgery. Um, I had a long recovery and I was so supportive. No one at any time made me think like, you know what? Maybe you should resign from being chair and not do this anymore. People just really stepped in and said, hey, we will we'll help get done the things that need to get done. And when you're well enough again, you can take back over. And that was a really incredible experience. I received... 8,000 greeting cards, I think, from people in Nakata. I received so many well wishes. Like, I just felt incredible support when it would have been very easy to just say to me, hey, you know what? You should just take care of you and not worry about Nakata anymore. And and we will, you know, you step away and we're going to take this over. Um, So that was 
fantastic experience. So I finished up being chair and I had a little Nakata identity crisis where I went, what do I, what do I do now? Like you, you finish being chair at the end of annual conference and then all of a sudden it's just, just over. So thankfully the new chair asked me if I would stay on the steering committee for a while um, to help him get going. And that was, uh, I was happy to do that and happy to stay really involved. And that's when I started looking at other positions I could go into. And so I had put in an application for, um, so the position I'm going into now, advising community division rep, I, there's, um, every other year it's either elected or appointed. And so an appointed cycle was coming up. And so I applied for that and, um, lots of people do because there are amazing people in the advising communities division. And I did not, I was not chosen. I wasn't appointed, but, um, Kyle Ross, who was an advising community division rep at the time and is amazing, uh, reached out to me and said, I really liked what you wrote. And I think you should apply to be a cluster representative which are um, the people who make up the steering committee for the advising communities division. And I hadn't really thought about that. So it was like, well, fantastic. So I applied for that and um, was appointed to that and was cluster rep for two years. And then I applied to be the appointed rep again. And this time I got it. And so that's where I am now. And it's another one of those situations, like when I became chair in the first place where like my mind's a little bit blown, (laughs) like, Oh my gosh, like, what do I do now? What's, what's expected of me? Um, but it's been really incredible because I've been surrounded again by really supportive people like Amber and like Rebecca Hapes, who's the outgoing ACD chair and um, Dawn at the executive office have all been super supportive and welcoming to get me onboarded. Um, even though I haven't even quite officially started yet. Yeah. And it's like uh, with both your stories, it's like, what does Charlie always say? Nakata is a, is a family. And I guess for this question, I'm not sure who wants to answer it, uh, but this particular episode, the topic centers around Nakata advising communities. And so a couple months ago, could be shorter or longer. I mean, everything blends together for me nowadays, but you all reached out um, with an idea about talking about the advising communities. Where did this idea stem from and why is this an important topic to bring up? I can share on that. So um, Nakata has a crazy amount of members and a lot of them choose a membership or purchase a membership when they attend either a regional conference or an annual conference. And sometimes they just really purchase the membership to attend that conference and don't really engage in the organization in other ways. Um, The Nakata Advising Communities is really a subset to plug into advising communities that represent you, your work, to really connect with others. And we are working really hard to bring more awareness to our division and more awareness to Nakata members um, to plug into these communities to really develop yourself professionally, learn from others and grow. Um, And so we wanted to have this platform to share that message because we're still working on getting all those things out and not everybody knows who we are or what we're here for. I think what's incredible about the advising communities too, that people, the more they know about it, the more they can take advantage of it is, you know, like Amber said, Nakata is huge. There are a ton of members. So if you have a question um, about something that you need for your own practice, if you just throw that question out there, 
to everybody. <laughs> that's that's a huge, huge number of people who you may or may not get good answers from based on what they do. But, you know, with the work I do with student support services and first generation students, if I have a question about first generation students, there is a first generation advising community that I can be part of. I'm a member of it. I can reach out directly to other people who are also part of the first generation student advising community um, so that we can talk more specifically and connect with people who do the same things as we do or have the same interests or have um, knowledge in that area. And there's over 40 advising communities. So it is a really good benefit to being a member of NACADA. So even if you just signed up for NACADA, like Amber said, because, oh, it's cheaper to go to the conference if I'm a NACADA member well, great. You're still a member after that conference is over. So here is this amazing resource you can take advantage of that you may just not know a whole lot about yet. I think there are more advising communities than there are flavors of Pop-Tarts, which is quite amazing. Um, I think I hear 32 flavors of Pop-Tarts, so 40 advising communities. Okay, so let's say if I was a Nakata newbie and I go along and I buy my membership, I go along to the conference. How do I go about getting involved in the advising communities? So when you become a NACADA member, they actually ask you to choose four communities that you would like to join. And usually in that moment, we don't really recognize or even know what they are. And so we're not really, most most people aren't really sure. Um, but in our on the NACADA webpage, there's a list of all the communities um, underneath one of the headings, I think it's under community. Um, but you can see all the communities that are out there. And so there's two different ways to get involved. Um, there are, you can be a member of a community um, and you can join listservs of a community. So there is directions on every communi advising community's main page about how to join the listserv and listservs are open for anybody um, but at the moment Nakata only allows you to be a member of four so you actually have to log into your Nakata account and see which ones you're members of and then you can swap them out and that's how you kind of change memberships so most of the advising communities have presences on social media um, so you know if you you can connect with them on all the different social media platforms that they're on, but um, kind of being a member of your four, switching that in your account, or you can be a listserv um, to as many as you want. And one of our goals for this year, and it's also kind of an ongoing goal um, from the division itself, is to beef up our communication to members so that instead of, okay, I officially joined these four advising communities on the Nakata website. And now what? Um, we're working on automatic communication that goes out um, from the executive office, from the chair of the advising communities that they've chosen that says, hey, welcome to this advising community. Here's some more information um, so that members, uh, when they join, kind of have a, a an idea of, yeah, what is my next step? What do I do now? How do I get more involved? Yeah. And along with that, you know, I'm not going to ask you to name all 40 of the communities, 
But I think it could be interesting to uh, for listeners to highlight maybe some of the communities that you both were a part of. So I know you've mentioned the LGBTQA, uh, first gen, uh, transfer. So could each of you speak uh, about the communities that you've been a part of and maybe maybe what the, the goals of those communities are? And you know that way, anyone that might be interested, they kind of get that, that idea. So uh, Wendy, do you want to start? Sure. Um, so... There is the technology and academic advising community, which has produced some tremendous content since uh, COVID-19 happened and everybody went remote. They have put some amazing things out there on their social media and had uh, web resources and things like that. So uh, that's one. But just in general, there are advising communities that uh, focus more on specific populations of students. So like we said, first gen, LGBTQA. Uh, There are advising communities that focus more on programs. So there's an advising community if you um, advise nursing students um, and other programs that are more specific. There are advising communities that are focused more on the advisor. So one of our brand new advising communities is um, for advisor wellness and retention and just taking care of ourselves as professionals. Uh, Another one of the new ones is uh, an advising community on social justice. So a lot of the advising communities kind of deal with that separately, but this kind of puts it all together in one place, which is really exciting. Yes. So um, other really great ones, they do have one for faculty advising as well, which is really important. Um, That voice doesn't always get heard all the time. There's um, advisor training and development, which is really, really huge. They've done a lot of really great Zoom discussions, which are all recorded. Um, There's one for elementary education. Um, Yeah, I mean, you can pretty much, there's one for small colleges and universities. So there's a lot there, and you can really see where your niche is and be able to really choose ones that fit your role, your position or your passions and what you want to do. Yeah. And connected to that, usually the question sometimes that will come up is for time. You know, we have our schedules as, as our current jobs, our responsibilities, and it might be even more impacted now that, that we're working, most of us are working remote, but I know you can't necessarily answer this specifically, but I guess in your experience with the communities you've been a part of, how much time do you feel like you had you were devoting to like specific advising communities or in general how much time and was it something that could be you can balance as much or as little as you want to put into it so some mm-hmm. advising communities have been a part of in the past it's been very passive for me like i want to get the emails they send out i want to have access to their resources and things like that um, but i'm not necessarily interested in getting involved in a leadership position or putting forth content in that area um, and then there's been other advising uh, communities that I've gotten heavily involved in. So like we mentioned LGBTQA, I got heavily involved and then became the chair of that. So that definitely took a portion of my time, but that was all by choice. So there is no, joining an advising community doesn't necessarily mean you're putting in any kind of time commitment whatsoever. You're just really joining up with a community of people and having access to their resources. And then from there, it's your choice if you want to get yourself more involved or not. Yeah. And I suppose, Wendy, speaking in terms of involvement, you were also a recipient this year of the Service Award. I was. Yes. Thank you. 
can you tell congratulations <laughs> on that and can you tell listeners i suppose a little bit about what that a, a little bit about what that award is so um you know there's various awards within Nakata and the advising communities division has one called service to the acd and so you are nominated by other uh by your colleagues for having served the division in some way. So that might be service to a specific community, that might be service to the division as a whole. Uh, you may uh, you may get the service award because you were a really great cluster rep. You might get the service award because you were a really great uh, chair for a community. You might get the service award as just a general member who hasn't taken any specific leadership role, but who has really uh, given a lot to a specific community. So, uh, for example, uh, a friend of mine got the service award one year because he uh, did a lot of work towards getting more research done within a specific advising community and um, really contributed to that a lot. And so the chair at the time felt like, hey, he gave a great service to this community. He deserves to win a service award. And so um, nominated him. And uh, when you're nominated, there has to be several uh, letters of recommendation that are also written by your colleagues who know about your service. And so it's not just like a, oh, I filled out a quick form. It takes a lot to um, actually nominate someone. And so those letters of recommendation goes in, the recommender has to put in reasons. Um, one of the cool things about Nakata is part of the application is also having an opportunity to put in the person you're nominating's um, their supervisor or someone else at their college or university so that um, not only do you get recognized, but Nakata reaches out to other people who you work with to let them know um, that you've been recognized. Uh, so it's a really, it's a really great process and it's a really great way to acknowledge people um, and the work that they've done, which might not show up in other ways. And a testament to the work that the recipients put in, including yourself. Thank you. Now you've also mentioned, um, you know, cluster rep, um, various terms, and, and, you've, and you've defined those, uh, which thank you for that because um, I know People have heard those terms that may not know exactly what those mean. Um, and I think this goes to when we were talking a couple of months ago in terms of like sometimes there might be some confusion um, or people might feel overwhelmed by the various terminology that, that's out there and the amount of opportunities that are also out there. Can you uh, describe like the difference between like what um, an advising community is versus what a working group is or a task force is? Yeah, so um, the advising community... The advising communities is open to all Nakata members. Anybody can be a part and join in, you know, and like Wendy said, you can be as in, as involved as you would like. So most communities um, have a chair um, and then they do have supportive roles, you know, usually with a steering committee. Um, so as a, as a member of the transfer um, community, I was on the steering I was on the steering committee for a year or two before I was chair. So you're really just working to help develop the goals, and I think you know it's really spreading out the work so it's not all on one person, and that's really the goal of steering committees in general. So um, a task force is really more um, created by the Nakata president or the executive office. So we have a task force 
um, going right now. We have other kind of working groups that are really made from members of other leaders in the kata. So it can get really, really complicated. Um, but for the for the normal member, you know, it can be a member of a community. You can be as on a steering committee, working with the chair of each individual committee, and then there's different kind of levels as you go up in leadership to be a part of. So Wendy, we um, she got the service award last year. She was a cluster rep, which is the steering committee for all the advising communities. So the cluster reps really take a small group of the chairs of the advising communities and really mentor them. And we have those cluster reps working on different projects. And so Wendy went above and beyond and really gave us a lot of great feedback on some other projects among just being an amazing person and leader. And I would, thank you, uh, I would add to that, um, that the advising communities are really meant to be uh, more of a permanent fixture. So it's not that they can't come and go. Like we have some new ones now. There are some that have, you know, people have just lost interest in them and they went away. But in general, they are kind of a fixed feature that are ongoing. Whereas the task forces, uh, if you hear about a task force, it's generally a more temporary thing. Um, it might be it, it might be a year long. It might be even a little longer than that. But just generally speaking, it, there's an expectation that that's going to end. Whereas we don't have that expectation with the advising communities, they're meant to be ongoing. And then maybe to put you both on the spot a little bit, you've done a wonderful job of explaining what an advising community is, why people should get involved. But if I was to ask you your favorite thing about being involved in the advising communities, what would that be? And Amber, I'm going to start with you on this one. I'm going to have two. <laughs> um, my, my number one thing is really just the connection to all the people, because that's really been the most meaningful thing for me. You know, as a professional, it's so great to have people that are not on your campus to process with. Um, you know, as, as a leadership team in the advising communities division, we've had a lot of processing meetings of all of the things happening on our campuses and all the changes and frustrations. And so it's nice just to have a group of people that are not on your campus that you can really share openly and honestly with and just have fun. So the people is definitely number one. The other really meaningful thing that it's brought to me is just it's helped me to develop my skills as a professional. I don't have a lot of opportunities on my campus. There's no career ladder on my campus. You know, I can't change the title of my job and get more duties. That's just not a choice in my current position. So Nakata has really given me an avenue to add more things to my resume, to gain more skills, um, to just, you know, raise my level of professionalism, I guess, um, as an advisor. So that's, that, that's, that's been the most meaningful thing to me, you know, no matter what's going on in your job, you have this awesome avenue, which is volunteer that you signed up for that you love, and you get to interact with all these positive supporting people. Amber stole my answers. Uh, <laughs> but I'll make them specific to me. Um, Nakata in general, I say, has given me a lot of opportunities, but really the majority of those opportunities have come out of my participation with the advising communities division. So I've had the opportunity to present with people from across the United States. I've had the opportunity to work with people from around the world. Um, I 
being part of the advising communities division pushed me towards applying for the emerging leader program ELP. And so um, I did that a couple years ago and my mentor um, is in Doha, Qatar. And so, you know, she's around the world for me. And that is a connection that I definitely wouldn't have made um, without, without this. Um, I am, uh, there, I am a co-author on a couple chapters in an LGBTQA advising book that will be coming out next year. And that definitely, I wouldn't have had that opportunity without having been a part of the advising communities I've been a part of. And, you know, like Amber says, like I said earlier, it really comes down to people. The advising communities division is where I have met, um, and made my little portion of the Nakata family in general. That is where I've gotten connected with people and have been able to grow professionally because of the people that I have met that, um, I, I cannot see myself having had opportunities like that if it were not for getting so involved in the advising communities division. Yeah. And shout out to the 2017, the 2019 ELP cohort. Woo, woo. Woo. Matt and I were in the same class. <laughs> <laughs> And as we kind of wind down with, with, with the interview, you've talked about Nakata, we've talked about the, about the advising communities, your path into advising. They will go more professional within your institution and personal. So first question for both of you would be, where does the where do things stand right now? I mean, we're recording this on July 24th. This will get posted in the middle of, of August. So as of right now, as students are going to be starting the semester, what are your school's... Uh, What's the plans? The plan for my institution right now is to bring students to campus as safely as they possibly can. So um, our larger courses, mostly first year large lectures, are going to be all online because they can't safely social distance on campus. Um, some of our courses are a more hybrid model. Um, my kind of first year seminar course, um, we're bringing half the students in on Tuesday and half the students in on Thursday and everything else is online. So um, the departments have really, or the university has given us all guidelines for classes, guidelines for student services, and are letting kind of individual departments decide. So we are, as a university town, um, everybody's getting nervous about these thousands of students coming back. Um, all the students moving into the residence halls are going to be getting a test. And so they've spread out the moving over the course of two weeks. So um, I think folks are nervous um, just about what that's all going to look like. I mean, there are institutions in my state that are that have said we're going to be completely online. Um, but I think the biggest thing for me as a working parent is what is school going to look like for my children. and. Um, our governor just put out a proclamation last week, which changed things for the school system. So they're having to scramble a little bit. So that that piece of my world is a little up in the air right now and making um, my life a little challenging as my husband teaches at the university as well. So we're going to have to juggle and his classes will be on campus. So um, we just we just don't know right now. So dealing with all the uncertainty as we have been since March. We are taking kind of a hybrid approach right now. 
Uh, so some of our classes are still in person, but a good chunk of them have moved to online. So certain classes like chemistry labs, um, are still happening in person, but they're finding ways to, to, to socially distance and do things like Amber talked about with like, okay, half the class will come in one day and half the class will come in another day. Uh, the majority of our incoming freshman classes, they're trying to keep in person to give those students a chance to build some community, um, on campus. I teach one of those camp classes, but I got permission to move mine to online synchronous. My class is double the size of everyone else's because I, uh, my class is a special cohort of new students in my student support services program. So we specifically have this section uh, to be able to build community with those students. And so first of all, splitting them in half uh, stops stops them from building one big community together. Um, but also even splitting them in half, my class is still as large as everybody else's class is before they've split in half. So, uh, so my class is going online synchronous and we're working on ways to look at access for our students. And, and um, I'm going to be flexible with students because some of our students um, work for, I have a student who works in a hospital. And so like, her schedule is all over the place. She doesn't have a lot of control over it. And so um, I'm being flexible with students as far as that synchronous process goes uh, to make sure that they have access. And because we're a grant funded program, we've gotten permission to buy some laptops to help with students who may not have those at home. And we're also getting them internet access if they don't have that to make sure they can still participate in the class. Um, our residence halls are also going to be open, but they've made sure that all students will have a single room this year. Now, you know, we all kind of laugh and joke behind our backs that like, well, it's not like they won't visit each other, <laughs> but it does at least make sense in terms of if someone gets sick, they don't have a roommate who's like, well, what do I do now? Because I'm stuck in a room with a sick person. Um, and, and to keep everybody safe, it means that at least they can um, be spread out and be able to quarantine themselves off from other people if anyone does get sick on campus, but we're hoping not. Um, we've been a big commuter school for years, so um, that's helping a little bit with the resident hall situation. Um, and most of our, unlike Amber being in a college town, I'm in a pretty big metropolitan area, and the vast majority of our students are local. So thankfully, there's not really any concerns about the local community changing in makeup. Um, when our students are are back on campus, but there is concern about, um, you know, that many people. And so masks are going to be required now on campus. And they're still kind of in the process of figuring out how are we, how often are we going to clean classrooms and what do we expect our students to bring with them versus what are we going to provide with them? What if a student shows up without a mask um, and either won't wear one or just says, I don't have one. Do we have them for them? Are we? So um, we're still kind of working those things out. And I think that's just the nature of the beast for everybody right now that like, you know what, every week there's just something new to know and there's just nothing we can, we can do about that. So um, I'm trying to just roll with it for the time being and, and as new, you know, make decisions as, as new information comes out. Currently my office, there are four of us and we have a finite group of students that we work with um, in our program. We um, are grant funded to uh, work with 225 students. So, so we have a pretty, you know, specific list of students that we can get uh, in contact with. And so 
currently we have permission that could change, but currently we have permission to continue to work remotely uh, with our students because it's been working so far. And really the things that we can't do remote are things we can't do on campus anyway. So for example, when we have, um, we usually have a graduation party for our students graduating at the end of each semester. And we obviously couldn't do that in the spring because no one was on campus at all, but we still wouldn't be able to do that now, even if we were on campus because we still need to social distance. So we, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense for us to be sitting at our desks because we still can't let all the students in to do that. So we're working on what are the, what are innovative things we can come up with? What are other, um, organizations doing to make sure that we can still have that engagement with our students um, without actually physically having to all be together in a small space. Yeah, and it's times like this where this is where we're our most creative. And if we need to engage and connect with our students, like we will find that way. Mm-hmm. Now, on a personal question for, for both of you. Now, um, Amber, I've noticed that on, on social media, you'll, you'll post various videos um, of experiments that, that you're doing, um, how-to videos, I think you were fermenting cabbage on one of them, making sauerkraut. How's all that going for you? So we have been one year now in our home in the country. So this year has all about been learning more about how to be more self-reliant. Um, you know, we're, we have a much bigger home now, which I'm thankful I have four boys. And so, um, You know, my partner has always wanted a big garden, and so this has just been kind of a big process for us to, um, my my partner has the green thumb, I joke that I have the black thumb, so I just go out there and pull weeds and get all the produce and process it. So I've been learning a lot about canning and learning a lot, just, you know, putting food in the freezer and the jars or whatever, and so um, it's been really fun to learn more about that and be able to just, you know, be more self-sufficient and um, learn all about those things that I didn't know about before, like Japanese beetles and how terrible they can be and how awful they smell once you get a trap and things like that. So um, it's been an adventure for sure. Well, the traps that you posted that video, I was like, wow, that is a lot of beetles. You know, when you get 62,000 beetles in a day, you know, wow. we 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 decided that we were actually attracting beetles from many miles away, so we took them down because we figured they're just coming here. So we need to take these down and spray our trees and our plants, and then we won't have so many. So we did that, and we're still seeing them, but not in thousands. Thank gosh. <laughs> and Wendy, so in your your bio, you were talking about uh, being a knitter, a crafter, a gamer, singer, cheese lover, and punk goth enthusiast, Slytherin social justice warrior. How's all that going for you uh, doing all of that? (laughs) Really, I think I should start that off with introvert. So so many things I can do from home. Um, It's all going good. I'm currently finishing up a sweater for a, a friend of mine who is pregnant, well, for the baby. And so there we're doing a socially distanced shower on Saturday where I will drive up, basically push the present out the door, wave and drive away. (laughs) So that'll be fine. It'll be fine. Um, Spending all this time at home uh, gives me a lot of time to spend with my, uh, my spoiled cats. Uh, We call ourselves the Schindler home for broken cats. 
Uh, our first cat, I grew up with dogs. I never wanted a cat. I was never interested in getting a cat. But my husband grew up with cats. And we lived in apartments for a long time. And so finally, I was like, okay, we can get a cat. However, this cat needs to, one, I want to rescue an animal. Two, this cat needs to have an established personality. It needs to be old enough that they can say, this cat likes people because I don't want a pet that doesn't like me. So I got online and I found at a rescue this cat uh, who only has one eye. And he was apparently super, super sweet. He was found in um, a, a house where people were, they were hoarding basically cats. They had tons and tons of cats. Um, the fire department went in to clean everything up and get all the cats and they were all feral and had to be put down except this one little cat with a real messed up eye who they said was just the sweetest thing and they couldn't put him down so they put him up they 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 took care of him fixed his but they didn't fix his eyes it's closed up and um he went to a rescue where uh where I found him and was like this is my cat like this cat's only got one eye he's amazing so then after that, we decided we wanted another cat. And so I found a cat who had been a stray cat and had a big old scratch on his eye. And I was like, this is my next cat. And now we have a third cat who only has three legs. Uh, so the Schindler Home for Broken Cats, where they all have ridiculous names like Bingford, Leopold, Tiger, uh, <laughs> D'Artagnan, Beauregard, Red Legs, and Ripley, Priscilla, Trace, Leches are my cats. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I get lots of time to snuggle with them now, which is nice. That's I, I, the names are fantastic. The stories behind them are even better. And I just want to say thanks to both of you, to Wendy and to Amber for taking the time to speak to me and Matt this evening. Well, evening time for me, I can tell you that like, this is a, a great Friday night. I've really enjoyed the chat. I think we've covered a lot. I think listeners will have gained a lot from this interview and hopefully we'll really uh, look into the advising communities and how they can get involved so thank you both for taking the time to join us it's been really informative thank you for having us yeah it's been fun thank you so much really fun interview there and even though the state fair wasn't running i did get to learn a little bit about it and it whetted my appetite for when i can next make it stateside and hopefully venture along to a state fair and thanks to amber and to wendy for filling us in and i think really great insights into the advising communities and hopefully listeners will want to get involved because you heard there I think there's 40 odd advising communities there is something for everyone so whatever your interests are get on to the Nakata website and check out the information and see if there is something there for you and if there isn't you know, just like I suppose Amber and Wendy volunteer themselves to come on and speak to Matt and I, you two could uh, put an idea forward to our next interviewee, who is Dawn, and maybe pitch the idea of starting a new advising community if that's something you'd like to do. 
And Dawn is somebody who does so much work at Nakata and she really has the advising communities division running incredibly well. And so I just want to give, um, you know, kudos to her for doing it. And you will hear in this interview what goes on behind the scenes. And really, she is the, the Wizard of Oz. You don't see behind the, the curtain. You get a little bit of an insight here. And I'm really happy that she took the time to talk to us. So let's hear from Dawn now. All right, our next guest is Don Krause, who has worked for Nakata as a content program coordinator for almost four years. Her major duties include being the executive office liaison to the advising communities division, as well as overseeing the global awards and recognition program annually. One of her favorite aspects of Nakata is the willingness of members to give back to their colleagues. Don was hired by Nakata because of her many years working as an information professional. As a librarian with a master's in library science, Dawn takes particular pride in answering the many questions that come into Nakata via the Clearinghouse of Academic Advising Resources and in creating new resources for Nakata members. For much of her career, she created professional development programs and resources for library staff across the state of Texas and pursued her master's in human resources development in 2016. In her spare time, Dawn is obsessed with making ceramics in her home studio. She's happily married to her high school sweetheart for 30 years together, and her best friends are her two mutts, Gregory and Maya. Travel, reading, cooking, baking, Zumba, horseback riding, Pinterest, and gardening also keep her busy in the little city of Manhattan, Kansas. Dawn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. Great to be here. We're delighted to get the opportunity to chat to you. And this is the one of those moments where it's it's a podcast, so listeners can't see you, but you have the most amazing glasses on as we are recording th- this interview. I am very jealous as a, a glasses wearer myself. I, I definitely need to get myself a pair of those. So if you can let me know where you got them after we're done with this. Pearl tortoiseshell. I'll just say that pearl tortoiseshell. Shell. You just have to go out and find those. I'll do some. I'll do some googling uh, on that. But we are delighted to have the opportunity to speak to you because I think almost every Nakata member is going to know the name uh, and have uh, received an email from you at at one point or another, or numerous emails. So it is good to to get the meet, to meet the person behind that. So maybe what would be good for listeners to hear is, I suppose, how you came to to work with Nakata. Well, it's kind of a funny story. Like many uh, connections are with jobs, I think. Um, networking really gets you, I think, in, in the best places at times. And uh, I had the opportunity to write a grant for uh, Manhattan Technical College when I was working there that included advising. It was a Title III uh, Department of Ed grant, and of course, that usually will include a lot of student services and support services. And, you know, I had been in academia, so of course, I know what advising, I knew it, what advising was at the time. But as far as getting services and getting training to come into Manhattan Tech to um, help our advisors and give them more professional development, I put in an inquiry with Nakata, and that's how I found out about it. And um, they got back to me. It was actually Jennifer Jocelyn's name that I saw. 
and who offered up um, services, her services to come over and um, train our advisors. So that is how I found out about Nakata. And then a couple months later, I just happened on a job ad for Nakata, and I had such a great experience interacting with them that I thought, this seems like a really great place to work. And so I applied, and lo and behold, almost four years later, I'm still with Nakata. And you do a lot within Nakata. So like Colin was saying, probably everyone has received some email from you, and they've seen your name. And I'm glad that we have this as an opportunity to kind of get to know you a little bit better. So other listeners who've gotten your emails can know, okay, who's the person that's been sending these emails to us? So now you've been working as in, in Nakata as a content program coordinator for almost four years. Um, you, you do a lot, um, some of them, including um, overseeing the global awards, as well as being the liaison to the advising communities division. So we talked to Wendy and Amber, so Amber Cargill and Wendy Schindler earlier. And so they were talking about the advising communities and from their perspective, what they feel the advising communities are and also the ones that they've been a part of. So I guess from your perspective, working in executive office, how would you describe the advising communities and why are they important to Nakata? Well, the advising communities, I feel like, are little microcosms within Nakata that um, can nurture members, can introduce members into kind of a smaller group within Nakata. They're topically focused. And so um, some of the topics have been around for almost the 40 years, the entire period that Nakata has been in existence. Some of them are newer. They sort of ebb and flow. And our tagline within the advising communities is... um, we're here to help advisors help students. And I just love that tagline. Uh, Whenever anybody asks me about Nakata, I always say, you know, that's why we're here. Um, So that's, that's creating resources, um, having online discussions, doing articles in the journal or academic advising today. So I feel like they're little microcosms within a very large membership where people can get to know one another a little more intimately and can really create resources around a topic that interests them. That is a wonderful tagline and a great summation of what Nakata is all about and I suppose what advisors seek to do. Now, I know you're very involved in the advising community, um, the awards advising community, and obviously that ties in with your role at Nakata. I'm wondering, are there any other advising communities that you are active in or involved with in particular? Well, uh, the, we have 40 advising communities, and so there's lots of topics to choose from. And my role within the advising communities is really to support the leadership. So each advising community has a chair, of course, that's elected now. And they also have a steering committee, and that can range in terms of the number of people that support the community, usually based on just the overall membership of the community. Some communities have upwards of 2,000 members, others, you know, have 300. So the steering committees kind of reflect that. And so I help them set up meetings. I help them with um, resources and policies and procedures that they need. And so I'm always there to support them and and help them as much as I can in their role, knowing that they are volunteers. Many of them have very full full full-time jobs as well as being volunteers (laughs) with us. And so 
always keeping in mind that whatever I can do to make their life as a chair or life as a steering committee member easier, then um, I'm always going to try to go the extra mile to, to do that for them. Um, and it's really always a pleasure. Uh, advisors are some of the nicest people on the planet, just like librarians. They're, you know, they're always helpers and they have a great attitude usually. And so it, that's why it's such a pleasure to work with them because they're choosing to do this work for us. And um, so that it, it makes an extra special pleasure. So I have pretty much, you know, interacted with every single community on multiple levels, whether or not that's supporting the chair, supporting the steering committee, helping them with graphics, being on their discussions, being in their chats. So um, I have a pretty great relationship and a pretty solid understanding, I think, of all 40 of our communities. All right, let's name all of them right now. I can't do it. <laughs> Just kidding. So earlier you were mentioning librarian, and we know from your bio that you were a librarian and you have your master's in library science. The question that, or not question, but sometimes a statement that you might hear growing up is like, oh, librarians, those are just people that help other people check out books. Talk to us about what a librarian does. No, Matt, it's that we're reading all day. Right. It's just that we're sitting there just reading novels all day long. Um, actually, you know, the library profession is very diverse. Um, just like there are types of advisors, there are a lot of different types of librarians. And um, I worked largely in academic libraries at the community college level, uh, as well as the four-year level, and um, also was very much in a capacity at the state level in Texas, where I worked with librarians and provided them with professional development, much like Nakata provides that for advisors. So I would say that we are doing a lot of reading only in our spare time, and that <laughs> at the actual library or the institution where we work, we are uh, networkers. We are out there um, within all the departments trying to make sure, again, that your students have all the resources they need in order to um, do their assignments and to cite their work properly and to get access to tons and tons of resources like we have in our clearinghouse of academic advising resources. So I feel like librarians are really connectors. And that's why I got involved in the profession originally was because I really wanted to connect people with the vast amounts of information that was out there. And, uh, you know, I feel the same with advisors in Nakata and just connecting them with the resources that we have. And our ever-growing resources and our ever-growing body of research really has um, made it a lot more robust. In the past 10 years, research and academic advising has really blossomed. And it's my privilege to be able to try to connect people with that. Oh, and I know as librarians, when I was an undergrad, were super helpful, especially with finding articles for me, like for my research papers, because I was a psychology major. And this was also when, um, I mean, there were online articles. So when I would search, I might only find like the abstract. And I'm like, well, I need the whole article. And they were super helpful in locating that or contacting other schools and, and trying to get that information uh, for me. So, I mean, shout out to all librarians out there. Yahoo, Yahoo, yes. And, you know, 
I, I, I'm going to date myself here, but <laughs> I, when I first became a librarian, a lot of what we did was paper-based uh, research. And so uh, the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature, I did a lot of searching with students through every year of the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature because it wasn't in a database at that point or it was in a very expensive database. So it's interesting to see how far we've come with that. It's just so great, all the technology we have. Don, I know one of the areas that you are involved with that we mentioned was NACADA's Global Awards program. And maybe you could tell listeners a little bit more about that. Yes. Um, we've been giving out uh, awards for at least 20 years formally within NACADA. And uh, that process is overseen by the Global Awards Committee. And uh, if you're interested in membership on the Global Awards Committee, I know uh, both Matt and Colm are familiar with it as well as myself. Um, we have a wonderful chair right now, Brandon Loudon, who um, is doing a lot of outreach to two-year colleges. He is at uh, Pikes Peak Community College, so he's, his passion is getting more two-year colleges involved in the Global Awards. But annually, we give out at least 120 to 150 awards uh, to recognize the great work that advisors, administrators, scholars are doing around uh, the globe related to academic advising. Um, so, of course, you know, that's a really happy thing. I mean, awards and recognitions, how can that not be a really happy, fun thing to do to give kudos out annually? So I really do enjoy that process. And it involves a lot, again, of volunteers because, we need you as NACADA members to be reviewing for us. Uh, the peer review process in advising uh, awards is very important. We want to have that input from peers to really highlight outstanding, what is outstanding advising. And um, annually we get a lot of really stellar um, applicants and nominations. So um, yeah, global awards, really fun stuff. And I actually don't think Brandon sleeps. I mean, he's always so busy doing all these things. I mean, I don't know how he does it, but you know, another shout out there to Brandon. Overachiever. <laughs> but you were talking about with the Global Awards needing help with folks to read. And I'm sure that they would also probably get an email uh, from you that's sent to members if, if they want to. Now, if anyone is interested in reading, but they've never done it before and they're like, am I going to be able, am I going to do it right? There are instructions, rubric, things they can go off of, right? Absolutely. We have really worked hard um, since I took over the Global Awards Committee uh, about four years ago to make sure that rubrics are now in place for each of our major categories. Uh, we thought it was important to have a guideline that advisors could go by to sort of rate their application. And it's, of course, helpful on the flip side as well when you're reviewing um, to know exactly what, if you're giving a score of one, what does that mean versus a score, a high score of three for, for an outstanding candidate? So, you know, it's kind of a, a little more of a roadmap than people have had in the past, I think. So um, our, our programs are always improving that way. And I think rubrics really help um increase the transparency. What are we looking for in terms of outstanding advising and really outlining that well. And so um, we try to provide as much support as we can with that. And if you're interested in applying for awards or getting nominated for award in, in the future, it's always great to have the insider information of having reviewed nomination packages in the past. And talking about giving support and 
Dawn was given a big shout out by Casey Gregerson, who is a senior academic advisor up at the University of Minnesota. So Dawn doesn't just say that she supports, she really does it because Casey said that Dawn is an incredible asset to NACADA. She said, Dawn has taken me under her wing and has guided me. It can be a bit overwhelming to be put in a leadership position in an organization as large as NACADA, but Dawn has been incredibly patient while also being very responsive. I cannot recommend Dawn enough. <laughs> it's so nice. That's such a wonderful comment. Uh, it was humbling to get that. Very nice. You know, NACADA has a culture of appreciation overall at the executive office as well. It's one of the things that really attracted to me, as I said in the beginning, um, Jennifer Jocelyn, if she's not an ambassador for Nakata and has been for years and years, then I don't know who is. But um, Casey Gregerson is the new chair of the Wellbeing and Advisor Retention uh, Community, which just came online in 2020. So um, she has been doing some really pioneering work in her area. She has always been very supportive of uh, wellness initiatives at the annual conference. And she decided, I think she was voluntold, by Amy Sanis, who was president um, at the time when they were in Phoenix at the annual conference. And Casey came up with this great idea and Amy said, okay, go and do it. Go forth and do it. And Casey uh, has really done, has, has run with it. Is that how it usually happens if you have an idea? It's like, great, go and take care of it. You can't say it too loudly in the kata because somebody will take you up on it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, speaking of the Global Awards, a question that might come up that someone might think is... Can I nominate myself or is it something that I have to be nominated by someone else? Absolutely. You can self-nominate. You do not have to wait for someone to uh, nominate you. And, you know, a lot of that also stems from maybe not having a culture of nominations or an award cycle at your own institution. We see a lot of times the best applications come out of places that kind of have that awards culture within and they nominate for an outstanding advisor at the institutional level. They'll nominate for an advisor, outstanding advisor at the regional level. And then that person will go up to the global awards um, over a series of years, perhaps. So if you don't have that type of culture, then um, absolutely, you can still self-nominate. I would not let that discourage anyone from from applying. We're really always uh, looking to see uh, a real range of, of nominations from all different types of institutions. And so small, large, it doesn't matter. Um, put your nomination and throw your hat in the ring. Absolutely. I think uh, it's great to encourage advisors to um, get involved in, in each and every way and certainly putting themselves forward for an award would be a great idea. Dawn, I suppose I'm wondering, during your time at NACADA, be it your involvement with the advising communities, with the executive office, with any of the conferences, are there any standout moments or some standout moments for you that you'd like to share with listeners? I think one of the standout moments um, annually for me and something I always really look forward to is, of course, annual conference, because I actually get to see folks in person. You know, um, I know you all as advisors see students a lot more and we, we don't we have our student workers, but we don't really interact since we're not on the main campus a lot. And so we don't get a huge amount of interaction with um, our members and 
So, you know, you work so intensely with so many of them on individual projects and within divisions and within committees to finally be able to actually go to annual conference and spend some time face-to-face with them is, um, it's like the cherry on the Sunday every year. We all look forward to it. And I I really do think that um, the first time that I was able to uh, help host the Global Awards Ceremony I mean, it, it almost brought tears to my eyes. It, it actually did bring tears to my eyes to see those folks. We had worked so hard that year. I had learned so much, and I was so nervous about making it a nice event. And the first one um, was just uh, so nice to see it all come together. And um, that kind of annual recognition of folks is just very heartwarming to me. So that's definitely always a, always a highlight. Which was the first one that you did? Um, that had to be St. Louis. I think it was St. Louis, okay. Phoenix, Louisville. Yeah, and it would have been Puerto Rico. Let's see, it would have been tropical. Darn it. <laughs> that, that would have been nice. That one would have been nice. Now, a uh, quick question on the Advising C- Communities Division, so the ACD. So it's, it's one of three divisions that make up NACADA structure, right? It is, yes. W- what are the other two? The other two are the regional division, which, of course, contains the 10 regions, and then the administrative division, which um, has a lot of our uh, administrative functions, hence the name administration <laughs> or division. Um, we are one of the larger, along with the regional division, um, just because every member of NACADA gets to choose up to four advising communities uh, when they join or renew their membership. And so uh, we do have a, a pretty large membership as a result. And Don, I suppose they obviously a a significant number of the listeners to this podcast are NACADA members or, you know, familiar with NACADA. But for people who are listening who maybe aren't NACADA members currently, but are considering are, are there any, is there anything you'd say to, to maybe, you know, bring the, bring them over the line to, to really uh, t- take, uh, take the, the plunge and become uh, NACADA members? Yes, I would say uh, the professional benefits, I think, of being in NACADA um, are so many and varied. Um, like I was saying with networking and, and jobs and job changes and promotions and just uh, interest that you have uh, beyond uh, the work that you do on a daily basis. Um, when we look at outstanding advising, you know, it, these are the types of things that people are doing beyond their um, 40-hour work week. And I think Nakata has a lot of avenues to do different types of work that you might not be able to do every day in your position. Um, a lot of advisors, I think, find that um, – the student interaction, though it's though it's wonderful, it's a lot of student interaction, and maybe they want to branch out and see what it's like to lead an advising community, or see what it's like to chair a committee, or even get involved at the conference level. Or there's so many different ways. I think that um, if you want to develop some skills, some additional skills, that Nakata is a great way to do it. I will also say that. Um, there are definitely some great things coming up in 2021 as far as member benefits. And so some of the stuff is, is super secret. Um, 
products and programs and services. Uh, so I would say that um, in addition to the great benefits that we have now, there will be even more in the future um, as we increase our virtual offerings. So hopefully that'll tempt some people. And once we're done recording, then you can tell us those secrets for next year. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That was the teaser. So let's talk about outside Nakata. So you like cooking, reading, baking, traveling, Zumba, horseback riding, Pinterest, gardening. Are you able to fit a lot of that in your free time right now? I am. Uh, you know, ceramics is really the majority uh, of my time is spent um, making um, pottery. I have a home studio in my basement that includes a kiln and a wheel. And so um, if, if you want to know where I am and I'm not working, <laughs> it's usually I'm down in my basement. <laughs> uh, and my dogs, my two dogs have two beds right next to my um, pottery wheel. So they're usually down there with me as well, uh, giving me moral support. So um, I just, I have a lot of hobbies. I think librarians are really, they're Renaissance type people, um, just as a generalization. But I think we always have a lot of different interests. And um, maybe that's what leads us into the library, just because there's access to so many different topics and so much information all the time that it makes us uh, have a lot of interests and pursue a lot of interests. And so, um, yeah, I, I love my hobbies. And you sculpted a hair, right? I did um, a moon gazing hair. There's a woman in England who... Um, helped me. I took a class with her. And that's one of the great things, you know, I, I know COVID days are, are, are not overall a great thing, but so much more has come online and access to, to people that you've never had access to before um, here in the little town, the little Apple, Manhattan, Kansas, the world has opened up a bit. So um, I created a couple of those moon gazing uh, hairs. I sent one to my mom recently as well. So how long did it take you to sculpt that? Uh, the workshop she did online was about three hours. So yeah, it, it was, it was, uh, I haven't done much sculpture either. So it was pretty cool. Well, you could have fooled me. I, I, showed, <laughs> I saw like your, your picture video of it. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. And I want to buy that. Thanks. Thanks. You know, I have been, I have been working in clay for eight years and you just develop, you develop a certain touch with it over time. It's just like anything, um, I'm on the quest to get 10,000 hours in ceramics to become a true expert at it. And um, I think I'm still on track to maybe reach that goal when I'm 85. Hopefully I can still do it by then <laughs> because I'll be an expert. Well, there's a uh, ceramics are quite a big thing on the West coast of Ireland, actually. So if you, if you, yeah, oh. it's, it's a real kind of um, some ancient traditions with ceramics out, out West in Ireland and even in the islands off the Irish coast. So, you know, if you make it to this side of the Atlantic, there, there might be something uh, waiting okay. for you there. And okay. I suppose, Dawn, have you had the opportunity to go to any of the international conferences? No, unfortunately, not yet. But hopefully at some point, Greece, I would love to go to Greece. 2021 could be exciting for many different reasons. It could be on many different levels. We know Charlie Nutt listens to the podcast. So speaking of that, so if I ask Charlie Nutt, tell me about, describe Dawn. What would Charlie say? I think Charlie Nutt might describe me as Maybe on the quieter side, I am introverted. I am not naturally um, extroverted, especially in the office. Um, 
we have kind of the content side of the house and then sort of event side of the house in, in terms of phys- physicality. Um, and the content folk tend to be a little bit more quiet on that side of the uh, office than the rowdier side of the office, which is where Charlie's office is, actually. <laughs> he travels so much, though, so, you know. Um, but I think he would say that um, I'm very proactive. I think he would say that I have a lot of great ideas. I think he would say that um, I'm very supportive. Um, so, yeah, those those things for sure. Are you going to name names on who else is on the rowdy side of the house? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't I'll, think so. Another one for after we finish recording. That's right. That's right. Well, I think. John, this has been a really informative chat. It's been great to have the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. And I think listeners will have gained a lot from hearing you speak. I think you did a wonderful job in terms of encouraging people to join. I hope that we will see a spike in membership numbers after this episode airs. So thank you very much for making the time to speak to myself and Matt today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is such a wonderful resource for our members. So I'm so glad that I can help out with it in any way. great interview there and and Don is so sweet and if you ever get to meet Don in a Zoom meeting or finally get to meet her in person she is such a kind soul so thank you so much Don for that interview and your insight in the advising communities from the Nakata executive office side of things and speaking of executive office i think it's i think we should also shout out the whole Nakata EO and the Nakata annual conference committee for the work that they've not only done over the last probably couple years prepping for the October annual conference but also changing it to a virtual conference with everything that's going on in the world right now. And I can't imagine all the work that now goes into that. But what I do know, and I think what we both know, is that Nakata is going to put on a wonderful, enlightening conference in October. Absolutely. I have no doubt that it will be a stellar conference and that all Nakata will put out all the stops. So I'm looking forward to seeing and hearing more about the plans over the coming weeks. And Matt and I will keep you updated as as we hear more on, on the podcast. But keep an eye on your email inboxes and check out the Nakata website. Thanks again to Amber and Wendy and Dawn for chatting with Matt and I today. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and we would encourage you to look to get involved in those advising communities. We hope that you uh, took a, a lot from this and check back on our previous episodes. There are 16 episodes which cover a whole plethora of topics and you can find those wherever you got this uh, podcast and of course on the Nakata website. If you do have the time and you want to leave us a rating or a review that would be wonderful. We truly appreciate it and we will be back with episode 18 on the first Monday of September. So thanks again and talk to you soon.